0: Hi, I'm Chris Klink, and you're listening to my Writing Table podcast. Today, we're talking to Farrah Rochon, a native of South Louisiana, USA Today bestselling author Farrah Rochon was named Shades of Romance Magazine's Best New Author of 2007, and her debut novel, Deliver Me, the first in her Holmes Brothers series, earned Farrah several Reader's Choice Awards. Farah is a two-time finalist for Romance Writers of America's Rita Award and has been a Romantic Times Book Review's Reviewer's Choice Award nominee. In 2015, Farah won the Emma Award for Author of the Year. Farah has written several books, and her last one, The Boyfriend Project, won critical acclaim, including praise from O, oh, The Oprah Magazine. Welcome, Farah. Hi there, Chris. I don't you began this journey writing between classes at Xavier University. What were you supposed to be studying?
1: So I was writing and studying. Honestly, oh, I was. Okay. Um, but I was a psych major. Uh, I was a psychology major and with a minor in, I, I actually didn't declare minors, but I had enough to have a minor in English and Uh, business. So I I did. I wrote and studied, I promise.
0: That sounds like the perfect recipe for someone going into novel writing, the business, the (laughs) psychology, and the English.
1: From there, I actually went to grad school, earned my master's, and exactly one week after graduating um, from grad school, that's when I told my parents that I don't think I want to do the psychology thing. I think I want to be a writer. (laughs) And I I truly don't think my dad ever forgave me for that. I have been working on the book that I wrote that was not a romance. Um, I didn't think I was going to write romance at that time. But then Romance Writers of America actually had their annual conference in New Orleans. Um, The last year of my um my grad school year and I left class early to go I had no idea what RWA was or you know I just knew that Julie Garwood would be in town because it was in the local paper and I thought oh my goodness I have to go so I just went to the book signing having like I said no idea what this big conference was I I just didn't know. And by that next year, I was actually in Denver at my first RWA conference. And I went every year for 18 years after that. Uh, so I showed you how, how quickly things can change and how they changed for me. But I, I had a group of friends that I met online um, because we all love the same author. And when they found out that I was writing, they just assumed that I was writing romance. And I thought, you know what, maybe I'll give that a chance. And <laughs> it was so much fun. The, you know, the difference in writing that first romance novel compared to the more serious, quote unquote, uh, book that I thought I was writing before that, it was just night and day. And I realized, OK, so this is what I should be writing. And it it just changed everything for me. And I haven't looked back since.
0: How did that take you to publishing?
1: Well, I joined RWA uh, like two two months or so after that um, and decided, you know, because I was a student. I wanted to learn the craft and that's what it did. It taught me I was in a member of RWA for five years Um, before I got published but I do credit it with teaching me craft um, Mm -hmm. and teaching me about the business side you know and giving me opportunities to pitch and those things so um, you know a lot has changed this was back in 2002 you know and a lot has changed since then there's so many I mean people find their Agents on Twitter now instead of having to spend money to go to a conference. So, in ways, I feel like a dinosaur. Um, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> it's like back when I started, I had to go to <laughs> a conference to pitch, right? <laughs> and walk five miles <laughs> uphill barefoot. <laughs> exactly. Um, but it's fabulous. It is absolutely fabulous that people now can, you know, do something like Pit mad and and get an agent and a book deal and such from. Twitter uh it's great it's in it but it's totally different from when I was first starting you stayed busy with the Holmes Brothers a series
0: about swoon worthy men what inspired these stories
1: <laughs> that's funny that was my very first book um the first one I sold I should say because I wrote like five books before I sold my first and um I used to say that I got all of my ideas in a car because it does seem like my first few books, I was always driving to work. Um, but I do remember specifically where I was when I got the idea for the first book. Um, I was driving to work and there was a, a commercial on the radio that was about, of all things, gynecologists. <coughs> I see why he was advertising on the radio, but it was a gynecologist's office and they were advertising and something just clicked into my head about, you know, a nice looking young black gynecologist and what he would be doing, like how his friends would react to that. And that first it was like the first scene that came into my head and it actually did make it into the book. Um, I think it did. I'm sure it did, but it was like, what if they're all just like, you know, hanging around playing basketball, talking about their conquests uh, and such. And they all think that he lives a glamorous life because he's a gynecologist and sees women you know, all day in that way. And he has to tell them, yeah, no, that's not how my job is. It's not what you think is. It was just like that conversation in my that's head. awesome. I know. Isn't that crazy? But that's what like sparked the idea for that entire series. And I just thought, you know, make them brothers. What common themes do you impart in your writing? You know, for me, um, it it wasn't something I thought to do, but I tend to write a lot about family and community. And I realize that it's because, you know, that's one part of my own background that I bring to my novels that it was just unconsciously doing it. Because yes, I started, you know, with this series about the Holmes brothers, this close-knit family in New Orleans with a, a, you know, mother who made them get together for Sunday dinner. Um, you know, and that's the type of, that's what I grew up in. And I put it in my books and then I did the small town series for, um, Harlequin, my Bayou dream series, which was again, you know, it's about a town, uh, on the Louisiana Bayou, kind of like ding, ding, ding. That's me. <laughs> you know, that's what I grew right, up in. Right. What um, you know. Exactly. And like I said, it wasn't it's not something that I was consciously doing, but those themes of, you know, just the importance of family, the importance of community, they tend to show up in my books. um, And I just think it's a part of me that I put in there, not really realizing (laughs) it took it took several books, several series for me to see that theme showing up. Um, And other people telling me that they read my books because they know they're going to get that certain, you know, thing that I just didn't even realize I was doing. So, yeah, that's definitely the common theme for me, I think. When you started writing
0: romance and maybe reading romance, did you see a void in the characters who were represented as far as people that look like you?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, And, you know, I think it's probably because of, at least for me, it was, um, of course, the lack of just the lack of the books being there, but also just the way they were shelved. You know, I remember the first romance that I read featuring Black characters was Suzanne Brockman's um, Harvest Education, which was a part of this Um, series that she did for Harlequin. And I read it because that same bunch of friends that I talked about earlier, uh, they were all going crazy over this author, Suzanne Brockman. And I thought, okay, I need to read her. So I went to the library in my small little town that's, you know, 90% black. Um, I asked them if they had a Suzanne Brockman book and they were like, yeah. And I knew that the author that my friends were talking about was white because they put, you know, pictures of her books and all of that. And they said, we have one of her books. And the librarian brought me this book with these two Black people on it. I'm like, wait, is this the same woman? It was one of those moments, like, what's happening here? I know there's no way that, you know, what's going on? Um, But then I discovered that even my own library had a bunch of romances featuring Black characters written by Black women. It was Rochelle Ellers and Shirley Halestock and Brenda Jackson and Beverly Jenkins, but they were shelved in African-American fiction and not in romance. And, you know, that's what happened back when Borders was a thing. It, it was the same way in Borders. I even, once I got to see my own books shelved, you know, in a bookstore, it was frustrating. It was great to see my books on the shelf, but frustrating to see it next to Richard Wright and, you know, and Tony Morrison. I'm like, I don't write those books. I write romances. Why am I not in the romance section? So I think, you know, the books were there. But they were hard to find because they were shelved by the the author's um and characters, skin color, color. genre. Um, So it's, it's one of those things that has evolved. And um, in a way, so many with eBooks coming out and, you know, physical shelving, not being a thing, it's kind of changed it, but there's, there's still some issues with the way that Amazon categorizes some of the books and things like that. But Yeah, I think in the early days, there were books there. Um, I just couldn't find them. But once I did find them, it's like, you know, it opened up a whole new world for me. Uh, But we still, even 20 years, 25 years later, we still have a long way to go when it comes to, uh, you know, diversity in publishing and romance. But it's definitely better than it was when I first started.
0: I... I feel like I should include more diversity in my books, but I'm also very hesitant to do so because I don't want to be disrespectful or make assumptions. I haven't, you know, walked in their shoes, and so I'm hesitant to do so. And do you have any advice for someone like me that you know wants to integrate more, more color in my books, literally, but I don't want to make assumptions either.
1: So I I fall somewhere in the middle. Um, I think that there are enough authors of color to write from the point of view of uh, where I don't, I don't necessarily think that white authors need to write non-white characters, you know, in their point of view. Um, But I also, there's the talk of sensitivity readers and I think sensitivity readers have a place. Um, They can be useful as long as people remember that no group is a monolith. And even, you know, there's a black person who will be completely different. You know, their experience will be completely different from another and so having a sensitivity reader, they will still have a blind spot for things. So I I find that it kind of puts too much pressure because um, I've actually seen it happen where, you know, person writes a book, uh, something about it is just very offensive. And the first thing they say, well, we hire a sensitivity reader for this and so they're used as a scapegoat. I've seen that happen. Um, so it's one of those things where it's, it's just tricky and you, know, you have to ask yourself, why are you doing it? Um, and just how much heat are you willing to take? You know, if People will mess up. I mess up a lot. I have messed up in the past. I know I will continue to mess up in the future. Um, but you know, the Pharaoh who started t- what two thousand eight or so when my book first came out, um, is so different from the one who's writing now, and just the world is different. So, I think about some things in my earlier books that make me cringe. And I know that 10 years from now, I'm going to have things that I wrote that will make me cringe because like everyone else, I'm learning. And I think that's just, you know, you have to get to a point where uh, as long as you're respectful in the way that you do it um, and are willing to reach out to, like I said, friends or sensitivity readers if you have to, uh, and just willing to apologize and take ownership of your screw ups. If you do have them, that's that's kind of the only advice I can really give. And I'm sure if you ask the next person, it will be totally different. I think as long as people continue to ask for the books and buy the books, um, they'll see that there's a market for it. Cause that's where, that's what it comes down to when it, you know, when it comes to publishing the books that are actually selling and making money. It's always going to be about the money. Well, but it's like you said
0: earlier, when they were shelving the books with African-American literature and not romance, you know, if if people don't know those books are there, yeah. then it doesn't expose them to a different community that really makes us all a little smarter about each other, I think. And so yeah. I think it's important that we all read you know, read not just about people that look like us, but also people who don't. Your characters in The Boyfriend Project are the kinds of women who would, who any of us would want to have as our best friends. Do you know women like
1: Samaya, London, and Taylor? Yes, absolutely. With this series, I actually knew that I was including, you know, people that, not necessarily that I have a Samaya London and Taylor in my life, but intelligent, um, you know, strong Black women who know what they want, that's kind of the women in my family. You know, that was my older cousins. That's a lot of my friends that I have. So I definitely know women who have that same mindset. Um, And I did draw on them a lot while writing this series. That book hit all kinds of lists
0: from Cosmo's Best Summer Reads and Best Romance Novels to NPR's favorite books. When you were writing it, did you have any sense that that might happen?
1: No. (laughs) I was very blessed. Um, I've been blessed with the Boyfriend Project. It fell in with the absolute best publishing house to get it out there. And they really got behind the book in the story. You know, I knew it was different just because it's kind of a departure for me in that it has more of a women's fiction-y feel to it. Because I do spend so much time in there talking about just Samaya's journey and the, her friendship. It's kind of 50-50 with that and the romance. So it wasn't like my other romances. Um, but yeah, it was that. I, I just I've been floored this whole ride with this series um, has been amazing. And I had no idea it would get the response that it did. I'm so grateful.
0: <laughs> In August, your next novel, The Dating Playbook, will be out. Can you tell us about it?
1: Yes. Um, so for those who have read The Boyfriend Project, um, the Dating Playbook is features Taylor, who is the youngest of the trio. She is the up-and-coming, or at least she hopes she can be an up-and-coming fitness guru. Um, And she is of the three girls who they were all, for those who haven't read it, um, they all met because they were kind of scammed by the same guy who they were all dating Um, And they confront him and the video of them confronting him goes viral. And the other two women, um, they did not like the fact that it went viral, you know, and they were in the limelight, but Taylor actually did because she thought it would help with her fitness business. (laughs) Um, And, but it didn't. So, and unfortunately she is in a lot of financial problems you find out in her book but in her book she is contacted by this ex-football player who is trying to get back into the NFL but he doesn't want anyone to know and he wants her to be his fitness instructor to help him get back in shape oh this sounds so good already (laughs) Yeah, Um, so Taylor, of course, Taylor thinks this is my big break. I'm going to work with this famous football guy and everyone will want me. But the caveat is that he does not want anyone to know that he Uh. is working out. So she can't tell anyone. Um, And the, the reason it's called the dating playbook is that Taylor has a big mouth and she lets it slip. Well, when someone kind of wonders what they're doing together, she tells them that they're dating because she's trying to keep his secret. So they have to, it's a fake dating probe. I have to ask,
0: you have a particular affinity for Disney World. How does The Happiest Place on Earth recharge your writing?
1: (laughs) It's funny. I just got back from there last week. I saw Um, that. Yeah. we're, We're just a big Disney family. We... Uh, I'd gone a few times as a kid, but then when my youngest niece was like five years old, we brought her and just fell in love with it again. At 43, I've, I probably go to Disney more than any kid that you know, but I, I also just love their resorts. And I've always been one of those writers who, uh, I like to get away and especially if I'm just starting a book or, I'm on deadline a lot um, and I'm trying to finish it up. I will lock myself in a hotel room and sometimes it's at Disney. Sometimes it's just at the Hampton Inn in the next town. That's (laughs) like 10 minutes away, but there's something about locking myself in a hotel room um, and just locking out the rest of the world that I love. So often I will do that at Disney because I will, I use Disney as a like incentive for getting my work done. So I will spend all day writing. And if I hit my goal, I will reward myself by going to, you know, one of the parks and riding my favorite ride at that park. <laughs> so I could go, I can go to Disney and spend like four days there and spend a combined four hours in the parks over that entire time. But it's my motivation. It's it's how I reward myself.
0: It's, speaking of Mickey Mouse, did I hear something about a magical project with Disney?
1: Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I actually this talk about a departure. Um, I'm writing my first YA uh and it's uh It's part of this series that Disney has called The Twisted Tales. And they're all a twist on um, all of the classic Disney films. And I am lucky enough to write Tiana's Twisted Tale. Uh, I still, I don't think I can say what the twist is yet. I will have to ask my, I'm going to talk to my editor uh, this week, actually. So I'll have to find out, do we reveal the twist like in a, you know, Do we have to wait till the cover is revealed or what? But I have, I have a great twist um, to the the princess and the frog.
0: After the dating playbook comes out, then we'll have to revisit and see if we can find out more about
1: Tiana. Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But it's fun. It's a ton of fun. And yeah, I'm Mm -hmm. loving the series. Okay. What is the best writing advice you've received? Best writing advice I've received is to not compare yourself to others. It took me a long time to realize that and compare your career, I should say, to others. Uh, I didn't realize it was the best advice I'd gotten. But after several years, I now realize that it's the best thing. I would have saved myself a lot of heartache if I had, you know, earlier in my career realized that you can't compare yourself to others. So don't.
0: Thank you, Farah. Cannot wait to hear more about the dating playbook and Tiana's twist. So thank you so much. Thanks so much, Chris. To learn more, visit farahroshan.com. Music by Pavel Uden and photography by Casey Meineke. If you like what you're hearing, hit the subscribe button and consider leaving a review.